fascinating study was conducted not too long ago in London, England. They positioned a gentleman who was dressed basically like what we might call a, a street bum, for lack of a better way to put it. I mean, he had a rough-looking clothes on and scuffy-looking in the whole bit. And they placed him outside of a subway station where there was a lot of heavy traffic flow of people going in and out of the station. And he laid out there, dressed and looking really rough, and moaned, would somebody help me, would somebody help me? For over three hours, people walked by, careful to detour around him, but none stopping to do anything to help this guy out. After three hours of laying there and, and moaning, and this guy was an actor, so he really knew how to play the part, he got up and left, went and changed into a suit and tie, came back, laid him at the same place, began to moan again, and this time within three minutes, folks stopped to help him out. Now, it's fascinating, and I saw this in a uh, class I was in this past week, it's fascinating that dressed one way and presenting one type of person, folks carefully avoided him, dressed another way and presenting another type of person, people were quick to go. Now, the guy that was presenting the seminar I was in laughed and said, I guess the moral of the story is if you're in London and you happen to collapse outside the subway, make sure you got a suit on or you're going to be in bad shape otherwise. But how many times in life do we make decisions about people that we're going to connect to based upon our perception of how safe they are, how much they look like they're out of our demographic, so to speak, uh, you know, how acceptable they look, etc., and how many times do we make decisions to sort of keep our distance from people that from a distance or even up close, they don't look too much like our kind of people. Jesus was a guy that kept company. He kept company with some people that were pretty strange people from society's perspective to keep company with. And there were some folks that had a whole lot of hang-ups with Jesus about the kind of company that he kept. But in his process of keeping company with these strange folks, Jesus was trying to teach his disciples, the kind of company I keep is the kind of company that I want you to keep, that you should keep. The kind of people I'm connecting with, I want you to be deliberate about connecting with the same kind of people. If you have your Bibles, if you turn with me this morning to Mark's Gospel, chapter 2. Mark's Gospel, chapter 2. We're going to see in this passage that Jesus keeps company with people who were messed up. And He seeks to connect us to people who are messed up. In the story we're going to look at, we are introduced to a new follower of Jesus, and his name in the story is Levi, also Matthew. The name means gift of God. Matthew was a tax collector, and the tax collectors were known as publicans. I did not say republicans, I said they were known as publicans, okay? And Matthew, as this tax collector, was despised by the Jewish establishment. He would have been barred from the synagogue. He would have been treated as unclean as if he had literally had leprosy. And there was a reason for that. Number one, tax collectors collected taxes on behalf of the Roman government. 
And that didn't make them popular to begin with. If I introduced somebody to you this morning as an outstanding member of the IRS, you all probably would not be flooding to that person uh, to get their attention. So the fact that he worked for the hated Roman government was the first reason he was not very popular. But the second reason is that tax collectors were told by the government, the government is going to require X number of dollars or whatever their coinage was at that time from you. But then you can charge whatever you want yourself. And so basically tax collectors became legal extortioners. They could take as much money from people as they desired. And so they were hated for that reason. And so this is Matthew, and he's sitting at what we believe to have been a road known as the Via Mars. It was called the Way of the Sea. With the, the Romans were very intelligent about the way they collected taxes. You had this great big Sea of Galilee. You've got all these fishermen on the Sea of Galilee, and as they come off of the sea, they've got all these you know, tons of fish they've been catching, and they begin to sell their fish, and they begin to make money. Everything's going okay. But you get a little bit ways deeper inland, and you've got this road, and on this road there's one tax collector after another, and what the tax collectors are saying, you just sold all those fish, you just made all that profit, guess what? Now you owe, this, owe all this money off of the profit you just made. And so that's where Matthew is. He's seated there close to the Sea of Galilee, taking money from everybody that comes along. Let's join the story. Matthew chapter 2, Jesus has come up to him. He has told him, Matthew, I want you to follow me. And Matthew gets up and he follows Jesus. And he takes Jesus to his house. Verse 15, And as he, that is Matthew, reclined in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that Jesus was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now notice how many times in just two verses the terms tax collectors and sinners has been used. And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, my sermon outline is containing your bulletin, and I invite you, if you would, to follow along with me. Matthew decides he's going to follow Jesus. He gets up, walks away from all his financial security, his position with the Roman government, and he begins to follow Jesus. And Matthew's got a whole bunch of friends. And those friends, first of all, are a group of fellow tax collectors. And then it says that he goes to his home and his house is filled with all these tax collectors and sinners. Now, who were the sinners? This term sinners is not just a reference to people who sin. We all fall into that category. They were known in that day in the culture as people of the land. And they were basically regarded by the religious establishment in that day as sinners because these are what we would call today just plain, common, blue-collar type folks, and they had to work so much and work so hard that they didn't have time often to get to the synagogue. They couldn't follow a whole lot of the religious rules. They were just getting by and surviving in life as best they could. And the religious establishment of the day really looked down on these people, and they labeled them sinners. 
Because you can't get to the synagogue like you're supposed to. You don't follow all the rules and regulations like you're supposed to. You're not part of the elite like you need to be a part of the elite. So they looked down on them. They didn't want to have anything to do with them. And notice what has happened here. Jesus walks up to Matthew. And he's been building a relationship with Matthew. And he says to Matthew on this day, Matthew, I want you to follow me. Matthew gets up and he follows Jesus. But I love this. Matthew does not follow Jesus by himself. Matthew's got a crowd of people going with him as he follows Jesus. And they get over into his house and they have this meal that he hosts for Jesus and the disciples. And all of Matthew's buddies are there. Matthew's buddies are not Bible-thumping, hallelujah-shouting people. They are fellow tax collectors. They are fellow sinners, and they are filling the house up. And Jesus has gone in there and sat down with them, and he's eating with them and hanging out with them. Can you imagine the atmosphere? Now, we're going to see in a moment when the Pharisees show up, they have a conniption fit over this because that's not the kind of people that they think someone who proclaims to be a teacher or a rabbi is supposed to be hanging around with. But notice what happens in the story. Matthew, tax collector, rejected, looked down on, decides to follow Jesus. He's got a bunch of fellow tax collectors who decide to follow Jesus. He's got a whole bunch of sinners, people who don't normally hang out at the synagogue, who are looked down on by the religious establishment who decide to follow Jesus. They change the atmosphere, if you will, of the folks who are following Jesus and hanging around Jesus. Now, One of the observations that I've made over the years that I've been a pastor is that, and this is where I go from preaching to meddling, okay, is that we Baptists love to talk about evangelism and missions and going out and telling people about Jesus. And when we hear the reports of what happens on our mission trips, man, we get excited and we rejoice about it. But what happens in the church when the people that we've been reaching out here decide to show up inside here. Think about that. What happens when the people that we've been trying to reach out here decide they're going to come and join us inside the building? Because you see, when a whole bunch of either lost people come inside a church who don't know Jesus, or folks come to church who they don't know how to act in church and talk in church and speak church and all the rest, man, it can make the atmosphere get uncomfortable real quick. When I was pastored in Virginia Beach, we had a vacation Bible school going on. And we had, the neighborhood we lived in had just thousands of people that lived literally in townhouses and neighborhoods close to our church. And we had gone door to door in the neighborhood and we'd put out invitations to Bible school and the kids had come that summer and they literally were coming by the hundreds. And one evening I had one of my teachers come to me and she was just beside herself and she said, Pastor, this child cursed in the hallway tonight in Bible school. And it was all I could do to keep from saying good. Now, it's not that I approve of people cussing in church. I've heard in a few business meetings over the years, but anyway, just joking. (laughs) But the reason I wanted to say good is that means we're reaching the people we need to reach. When people who don't know Jesus come into church, they act like they don't know Jesus. They don't walk into church singing the Hallelujah Chorus. They may be singing something else, but it's not the Hallelujah Chorus. 
They don't act like they've been in church. And that was the kind of crowd. And folks, if we're going to go out and reach people in our neighborhood for Jesus, if we're going to go into Franklin County and share Jesus Christ with people in Franklin County who don't know Jesus, who don't go to church, if they decide they want to come to Rocky Mount Baptist Church, they're not going to walk in the door knowing how to sing all our worship choruses and hymns. They're not going to look and act and think like church folks, okay? They're going to walk and act and talk like people who haven't been in church, haven't known Jesus. And that's a crowd that Jesus loves to hang out with. And when the Spirit of God is moving in the church, that becomes the crowd that we enjoy hanging out with as we introduce them to the Savior that we know and love and hope they're going to be able to find and love. Now notice what happens. Jesus goes into here and he sits down and he says that they recline at the table. In those days when they ate their meals, the men had these cushions that they would put around the table and they literally would sit with one their face leaned on one hand and eat together, and it says that they were just sharing a great meal together. Now, we don't think a whole lot about that today, but in Semitic society of those days, if you wanted to say to somebody, I want to be your good friend, you shared a meal with that person. It's sort of like nowadays if you say, I want to go coon hunting with you, whatever, or fishing together, all right? You're trying to say, I want to be your friend, okay? If you say that to a city slicker like me, I'll go into shock, all right? And, and I would say this, if you invite me to go hunting with you, be careful because I think, you know, once I start firing that gun, I make no uh, promises to where the bullets are going to fly. But we'll kill something, all right? We will kill something. <laughs> I do a good funeral. I just want to let you know. I do a good funeral, all right? <laughs> and I got a brother over here that will work hand in hand with me, so we'll put you away, all right? We'll put you and the coon away just the way you need to be, all right? Well, Jesus is there, and he's eating at the meal, and he's got the disciples with him, and all these tax collectors and sinners are sitting there, and the Pharisees show up. If you read, you don't have to read very far in the New Testament, the Pharisees look like they're behind every tree and under every rock, and the Pharisees show up. Now, who are the Pharisees? The Pharisees were a group that were formed following the Maccabean Revolt. They were originally started to very much keep Jewish culture and Jewish law in place. They were known as the separate ones. And what the Pharisees did is they separated themselves from everybody else, and they believed that when God gave Moses the written law, which we know as the Ten Commandments, He also gave Moses what was called the oral law. And the oral law had rules and rules and rules. And everybody was supposed to keep all these rules. So what the Pharisees did is all day long and all night long and all year long, they had this long list of rules that everybody had to keep. And then they went around inspecting everybody to make sure that they kept all the rules. And you could not please God if you didn't keep all the rules. And so the Pharisees show up and they begin to judge Jesus. Now what Jesus does here is extremely fascinating. Jesus walks up to him and he looks at him and he says, those who are well don't need a physician but those who are sick. He is quoting from an ancient commentary on Exodus that was one of the books that they used. In other words, he's taking their own law book and throwing it back in their face. Notice what he says in verse 17. Those who are well don't need a physician. And what Jesus is essentially saying is this. You guys think you're well. You think you don't need me. You think you've got all your rules and you're holding your act together so much that you do not need me. So you don't need me. I can't do a thing for you because you don't think you need me. 
The power of Jesus in our lives never starts until we recognize how much we need it. And Jesus is saying, I can't do a thing to help you because you think you don't need me. But then Jesus says, verse 17, I haven't come to call the righteous, those who think that they don't need me, but I have come to call sinners. I've come to call them. See, all these people that are sitting in this room that you can't stand and you're looking down on and they're different from you and you've written off, I have called them. The reason they are in this room is because I have called them. The word there carries the idea of God laying His hand on someone. It is the idea of the work of the Holy Spirit taking a person and uniting them to Himself. I have called them. When I was a boy... Growing up in Richmond, I had my best friends live two doors down from us. And every night about 5.30, I'd be down there playing in their yard, and my mother would step out of the back door, which was off the kitchen of our house, and she'd start yelling for us. Call out my name, David, my sister's name, Beth. Dinner time. I could remember that night after night after night. David, Beth, dinner time. Now, several things went off inside of me when I heard that. Now, to be honest with you, one of the things that went off in me is if I don't listen to my mother and get up there to the house, I'm going to get the beating out of my life. So I knew I better move. When Mama spoke, you listened, okay? But I knew, number one, that I had a place at the table. I knew, number two, that she was going to have dinner waiting and ready. In the home that I grew up in, we had basically one sacred time during the day. And that was dinner time. Everybody in the family was together at dinner time. Now, I, I'm, I'm going to talk some ancient history here, okay? So please follow me. When we got around the table for dinner time, we did not eat with the idea that if we don't poke this food in our mouth as fast as we can and get this done in 15 minutes, it's the end of the world and we got to go into something else. It was the understanding that when we sat down, it was a nice long, leisurely meal for us as a family often would go an hour, and we caught up with each other about what was going on in each other's lives, what had happened in that day. It was sort of the time that we as a family were sort of together and glued together as a family and really got in touch with each other during dinner time. So I, I knew there was going to be at the place at the table. I knew there was going to be provision of food there. I knew there were going to be some rules and regulations that Mother had about eating there, and I knew that we were going to hang out there for a while because that's really where we bonded in the time we bonded as a family. It all started with mom calling us to the table. When Jesus says here, I've called these sinners, he's saying they got a place at my table. He's saying I'm going to provide for them at my table. He's saying we're going to hang out together. I identify with them. We are family when we get together at my table. So these are the folks he's saying, I've called them. I'm going to be a spiritual doctor to them. And let me say to you this morning, if you're here and you say, I am messed up. I'm not a church person, whatever that is. Pastor, I am messed up. Sin has taken a toll on my life. I've been away from God, etc. What I want to say to you is Jesus is calling you to his table. Jesus is calling you to his family. You have a place at his table. He's going to provide forgiveness and grace and strength 
and a new life and a new opportunity. And when you die, he's going to provide heaven for you. Someday, that's what comes at being at his table. Don't let your mess up keeping you from the Savior who specializes in unmessing people who are messed up. Now notice what happens with the disciples. Verse 15. It says they're sitting there watching everything that's going on. And they watch the Pharisees and Jesus interact. And they see the way, they see the way Jesus handles what's going on here. Now, I want you to follow me real closely. We usually read this passage when the Pharisees walk up and said, what business do you have eating with tax collectors and sinners? And we tend to interpret and understand that exclusively as a religious statement. We're righteous, we're holy, we're keeping all these rules. You people are, you know, you're not keeping all the rules, you're out to lunch. I don't think it was just a religious thing going on here. I believe there was also an ethnicity issue going on here and a socioeconomic issue going on. First off, most of the sinners in that day, the people who carried that label, were Gentiles. The Pharisees were Jews. And Jews were taught by the Pharisees to hate, despise, and look down on Gentiles. In fact, they were basically told Gentiles were made by God to be fuel for the fires of hell. And so when they looked at those Gentiles, they looked at them and said, what in the world are you doing hanging around with a bunch of Gentiles? These sinners, these sinner Gentiles, what in the world are you doing hanging out with them? Second, the sinners crowd were poor. And the Pharisees were known to be pretty wealthy, pretty refined, pretty cultured. And so the Pharisees are looking at these sinners and saying, Jesus, why are you hanging out with people who are not as educated as we are, who are not as refined as we are, who are not as cultured as we are? They're not our demographic. You see, there is an intersection between faith and ethnicity and faith and socioeconomics where often there's a lot of train wrecks that happen. Jesus knew how to negotiate that intersection because he accepted and loved people where they were. The Pharisees had one wreck after another because they couldn't bring themselves to do that. Most churches today are having wrecks at that intersection. Most churches today can be described far too easily. Well, that's a white church. Well, that's a black church. Well, that's a Hispanic church. Well, that's an Asian church. We do church by ethnicity and skin color. We do it by socioeconomics. Well, that's a blue-collar church. Well, that's a white-collar church. Most of the folks in that congregation are middle class. Well, that church is for the upper class. That church is for the lower class. 
You see, if you'd have walked into the room that day, you would have had people like Matthew who were wealthy and were the upper class. You would have people like that who were sinners, who were of the lower class. You would have folks who were Jewish. You would have folks who were Gentile. It would have been very difficult to describe the crowd in the room by socioeconomics. And folks, the problem I believe that we have in our churches today is our churches are far too easily described. We are waiting for heaven to become like heaven when people ought to see heaven in the church and the church ought to look like heaven before we get to heaven. When you get over to the book of Revelation, it says every nation, which is the Greek word ethnos, every ethnic group will be praising Him. It's strange to me that God wants to take us to heaven someday and put us all together up there to worship and serve Him with every skin color and cultural background expressed. But on this side, He wants us to stay separated. May I suggest to you that we have done an excellent job of telling our Lord, we'll run the show this side of heaven, you can run it that side of heaven. And what does that do to the power of the Holy Spirit among us? What does that do to our testimony before the world? It says that the love of Jesus just can't bring people together is what it does. That's one of the reasons the church has got so little power in the United States today to speak to anything. Because people see that we're so separated from each other, so isolated from the rest of the body of Christ that folks don't want to listen to us anymore. Jesus was trying to teach the disciples, if you're going to follow me, you don't separate from each other. I bring people together. And you're in this together with me. C.T. Scud, the great missionary of Christ to China, said these words, Some want to live within the sound of church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. Some want to live within the sound of a church or chapel bell, but I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. I want to challenge us this morning to be a church that runs a rescue shop within a mile or less of hell. For we are reaching people for Jesus, whoever they are. And we are asking folks to come in here and just simply do one thing, be willing to be loved by us. That's it. Just be loved by us and we will love them and who they are and where they're coming from. When I went to become the pastor of South Norfolk Baptist Church nine years ago, I met a lady the first year that I was there named Valerie Foy. Valerie was a mom of three adult sons and an adult daughter. Valerie had a slew of grandkids. And we had a ministry on Thursday night called Grace Mission where people who were in poverty and homeless could come and get a free meal. We shared a worship service with them and then we had the meal. Valerie and her family began to come. And the first shrimp we had, Valerie signed up to be part of. And for the next Eight summers, every year, she would come for training for shrimp, and she would be a part of shrimp, Southampton Rose Mission Project. 
I watched Valerie go out and work in the various neighborhoods and work in Bible school. I watched her clean tables at the church, but Valerie lived in poverty. Valerie moved from house to house to house. She never stayed in one place but so long. She was living basically renting places. Valerie would have to leave the site pretty much every day because Valerie had serious kidney issues. And she'd have to go to dialysis and go through the dialysis experience and then come back. And we were always amazed at how Valerie could go to dialysis in the morning and be out in hot sun in the afternoon working a Bible school project. One of my leaders asked her one time, said, Valerie, how in the world do you do this and why do you do this? You're, you're you know, on a blow-up mattress sleeping on the floor. You go to dialysis and you go out. And she said, oh, it doesn't bother me at all. She said, it's like vacation for me. And this really spoke to me because several weeks ago they went to wake her up and she had slipped on over to be with the Lord. But the example of her life and how she took what she had as a messed up person and hung out with Jesus and took the message of Jesus to a lot of other messed up people and didn't let anything stop her from doing that, from keeping company with the same people that Jesus was keeping company with. What's holding us back from keeping company with the same folks that Jesus is keeping company with? Let's pray. Lord, There's a lot of folks who need you. And Lord, a lot of those folks are not like us. Their cultures are different. Their backgrounds are different. Their life's journeys are different. But Lord, your love is greater and more powerful than any of that. And if we're going to really be serious about following you, Lord we got to find a way to connect to them. And it's so easy, God, for us to say, well, they won't listen to me or they won't bother with me because we're so different. But Jesus, you were the Son of God, as perfect and pure as it comes, and you connected, Lord, with people who were considered the outcast of society simply because you loved them. Lord Jesus, would you help us, would you teach us to love people the way you love people. To love past our fears, to love past the differences. To love in the power of the Holy Spirit. To keep the company, Jesus, that you keep. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, in just a moment as we sing, I want to invite you in prayer with the Lord to say, Jesus, would you release inside of me by the power of your Spirit your love to love people with. And if you're here today and you need to give your life to Jesus, I don't care how messed up you think you may be, Jesus loves you. He wants to change your life. Why don't you come and give your life to the one who is already 
given his life to you. If you are here today and you sense the proddings of the Holy Spirit to say, I want you to be part of this church family, to serve me in this place with these folks, to join them in the journey, then I invite you to come. And if there's any other public decision you need to make, feel free to come and just need to come and pray. This area becomes an altar now. Feel free to come. Lord, in these holy moments together, we want to respond to you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. Stand.